Lecture number 16 of Pioneers of Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Thomas Coos. John Thomas Coos Smarsky. Pioneers of Science by Sir Oliver Lodge. Lecture number 16. Comets and Meteors. We have now considered the solar system in several aspects, and we have passed in review something of what is known about the stars. We have seen how each star is itself, in all probability, the center of another and distinct solar system, the constituents of which are too dark and far off to be visible to us, nothing visible here but the central sun alone, and that only as a twinkling speck. But between our solar system and these other suns, between each of these suns and all the rest, there exist vast, empty spaces, apparently devoid of matter. We have now to ask, are these spaces really empty? Is there really nothing in space but the nebulae, the suns, their planets, and their satellites? Are all the bodies in space of this gigantic size? May there not be an infinitude of small bodies as well? The answer to this question is in the affirmative. There appears to be no special size suited to the vastness of space. We find, as a matter of fact, bodies of all manner of sizes, ranging by gradations from the most tremendous suns, like Sirius, down through ordinary suns to smaller ones, then to planets of all sizes. Satellites still smaller then the asteroids, till we come to the smallest satellite of Mars, only about ten miles in diameter, weighing only some billion tons, the smallest of the regular bodies belonging to the solar system known. But besides all these, there are found to occur other masses, not much bigger and some probably smaller, and these we call comets when we see them. Below these, again, we find masses varying from a few tons in weight down to only a few pounds or ounces, and these, when we see them, which is not often, we call meteors or shooting stars. And to the size of these meteorites there would appear to be no limit. Some may be literal grains of dust. There seems to be a regular gradation of size, therefore ranging from Sirius to dust, and apparently we must regard all space as full of these cosmic particles, stray fragments, as it were, perhaps of some older world, perhaps going to help to form a new one some day. As Kepler said, there are more comets in the sky than fish in the sea. Not that they are all crowded together, else they would make a cosmic haze. The transparency of space shows that there must be an enormous proportion of clear space between each, and they are probably much more concentrated near one of the big bodies than they are in interstellar space. Even during the furious hail of meteors in November 1866, it was estimated that their average distance apart in the thickest of the shower was 35 miles. Consider the nature of a meteor or shooting star. We ordinarily see them as a mere streak of light. Sometimes they leave a luminous tail behind them. Occasionally they appear as an actual fireball, accompanied by an explosion. Sometimes, but very seldom, they are seen to drop and may subsequently be dug up as a lump of iron 
or rock, showing signs of rough treatment by excoriation and heat. These last are the meteorites, or siderites, or aerolites, or bolides of our museums. They are popularly spoken of as thunderbolts, though they have nothing whatever to do with atmospheric electricity. They appear to be traveling rocky or metallic fragments which in their journey through space are caught in the Earth's atmosphere and instantaneously ignited by the friction. Far away in the depths of space one of these bodies felt the attracting power of the sun and began moving towards him. As it approached its speed grew gradually quicker and quicker continually until by the time it has approached to within the distance of the earth it whizzes past with a velocity of 26 miles a second. The earth is moving on its own account 19 miles every second. If the two bodies happened to be moving in opposite directions the combined speed would be terrific and the faintest trace of atmosphere miles above the earth's surface would exert a furious grinding action on the stone a stream of particles would be torn off if of iron they would burn like a shower of filing from a firework thus forming a trail and the mass itself would be dissipated shattered to fragments in an instant even if the earth were moving laterally the same thing would occur but if earth and stone happened to be moving in the same direction there would be only the differential velocity of seven miles a second and though this is in all conscience great enough yet there might be a chance for a residue of the nucleus to escape entire destruction though it would be scraped heated and superficially molten by the friction but so much of its speed would be rubbed out of it that on striking the earth it might bury itself only a few feet or yards in the soil so that it could be dug out the number of those which thus reach the earth is comparatively infinitesimal nearly all get ground up and dissipated by the atmosphere and fortunate it is for us that they are so this bombardment of the exposed face of the moon must be something terrible thus then every shooting star we see and all the myriads that we do not and cannot see because they occur in the daytime all these bright flashes or streaks represent the death and burial of one of these flying stones it had been careering on its own account through space for untold ages till it meets a planet it cannot strike the actual body of the planet the atmosphere is a sufficient screen the tremendous friction reduces it to dust in an instant and this dust then quietly and leisurely settles down on the surface evidence of the settlement of meteoric dust is not easy to obtain in such a place as england where the dust which accumulates is seldom of a celestial character but on the snow fields of greenland or the himalayas dust can be found and by a committee of the british association distinct evidence of molten globules of iron and other materials appropriate to aerolites has been obtained by the simple process of collecting melting and filtering long exposed snow volcanic ash may be mingled with it but under the microscope the volcanic 
and the meteoric constituents have each a distinctive character. The quantity of meteoric material which reaches the earth as dust must be immensely in excess of the minute quality which arrives in the form of lumps. Hundreds or thousands of tons per annum must be received, and the accretion must, one would think, in the course of ages, be able to exert some influence on the period of the earth's rotation, the length of the day. It is too small, however, to have been yet certainly detected. Possibly it is altogether negligible. It has been suggested that those stones which actually fall are not the true cosmic wanderers, but are merely fragments of our own earth, cast up by powerful volcanoes long ago when the igneous power of the earth was more vigorous than now, cast up with a speed of close upon seven miles a second, and now in these quiet times gradually being swept up by the earth and so returning whence they came. I confess I am unable to draw a clear distinction between one set and the other. Some falling stars may have had an origin of this sort, but certainly others have not, and it would seem very unlikely that one set only should fall bodily upon the earth, while the others should always be rubbed to powder. Still, it is a possibility to be borne in mind. We have spoken of these cosmic visitors as wandering masses of stone or iron, but we should be wrong if we associated with the term wandering any ideas of lawlessness and irregularity of path. These small lumps of matter are as obedient to the law of gravity as any large ones can be. They must all, therefore, have definite orbits, and these orbits will have reference to the main attracting power of our sun. They will, in fact, be nearly all careering round the sun. Each planet may, in truth, have a certain following of its own. Within the limited sphere of the Earth's predominant attraction, for instance, extending some way beyond the moon, we may have a number of satellites that we never see, all revolving regularly in elliptical orbits round the Earth. But comparatively speaking, these satellite meteorites are few. The great bulk of them will be of a planetary character. They will be attendant upon the sun. It may seem strange that such minute bodies should have regular orbits and obey Kepler's laws, but they must. All three laws must be as rigorously obeyed by them as by the planets themselves. There is nothing in the smallness of a particle to excuse it from implicit obedience to law. The only consequence of their smallness is their inability to perturb others. They cannot appreciably perturb either the planets they approach or each other. The attracting power of a lump one million tons in weight is very minute. A pound on the surface of such a body of the same density as the earth would be only pulled to it with a force equal to that with which the earth pulls a grain. So, the perturbing power of such a mass on distant bodies is imperceptible. It is a good thing it is so. Accurate astronomy would be impossible if we had to take into account the perturbations caused by a crowd of invisible bodies. Astronomy would then approach in complexity some of the problems of physics. 
But though we may be convinced from the facts of gravitation that these meteoric stones and all other bodies flying through space near our solar system must be constrained by the sun to obey Kepler's laws and fly round it in some regular elliptic or hyperbolic orbit, what chance have we of determining that orbit? At first sight, a very poor chance, for we never see them except for the instant when they splash into our atmosphere. And for them, that instant is instant death. It is unlikely that any escape that ordeal. And even if they do, their career and orbits are effectually changed. Henceforward, they must become attendants on the Earth. They may drop on to its surface, or they may duck out of our atmosphere again, and revolve round us unseen in the clear space between Earth and Moon. Nevertheless, although the problem of determining the original orbit of any given set of shooting stars before it struck us would seem nearly insoluble. It has been solved, and solved with some approach to accuracy, being done by the help of observations of certain other bodies. The bodies by whose help this difficult problem has been attacked and resolved are comets. What are comets? I must tell you that the scientific world is not entirely and completely decided on the structure of comets. There are many floating ideas on the subject, and some certain knowledge, but the subject is still, in many respects, an open one, and the ideas I propose to advocate you will accept for no more than they are worth, vis-à-vis -vis as worthy to be compared with other and different views. Up to the time of Newton, the nature of comets was entirely unknown. They were regarded with superstitious awe as fiery portents, and were supposed to be connected with the death of some king or with some national catastrophe. Even so late as the first edition of the Principia, the problem of comets was unsolved, and their theory is not given. But between the first and second editions, a large comet appeared in 1680, and Newton speculated on its appearance and behavior. It rushed down very close to the sun, spun half round him very quickly, and then receded from him again. If it were a material substance to which the law of gravitation applied, it must be moving in a conic section with the sun in one focus, and its radius vector must sweep out equal areas in equal times. Examining the record of its positions made at observatories, he found its observed path quite accordant with theory, and the motion of comets was from that time understood. Up to that time, no one had attempted to calculate an orbit for a comet. They had been thought irregular and lawless bodies. Now they were recognized as perfectly obedient to the law of gravitation, and revolving round the sun like everything else, as members, in fact, of our solar system, though not necessarily permanent members. But the orbit of a comet is very different from a planetary one. The eccentricity of its orbit is enormous. In other words, it is either a very elongated ellipse or a parabola. The comet of 1680, Newton found to move in an orbit so nearly a parabola that the time of describing it must be reckoned in hundreds of years at the least. It is now thought possible that it may not be quite a parabola, 
but an ellipse so elongated that it will not return till 2255. Until that date arrives, however, uncertainty will prevail as to whether it is a periodic comet, or one of those that only visit our system once. If it be periodic, as suspected, it is the same as appeared when Julius Caesar was killed, and which likewise appeared in the years 531 and 1106 A.D. Should it appear in 2055, our posterity will probably regard it as a memorial of Newton. The next comet, discussed in the light of the theory of gravitation, was the famous one of Halley. You know something of the history of this. Its period is 75 and a half years. Halley saw it in 1682 and predicted his return in 1758 or 1759. The first commentary prediction. Clairaut calculated its return right within a month. It has been back once more in 1835 and this time its date was correctly predicted within three days because Uranus was now known. It was away at its furthest point in 1873. It will be back again in 1911. Coming to recent times, we have the great comets of 1843 and of 1858, the history of neither being known. Quite possibly, they arrived then for the first time. Possibly, the second will appear again in 3808. But besides these great comets, there are a multitude of telescopic ones which do not show these striking features and have no gigantic tail. Some have no tail at all. Others have at best a few insignificant streamers and others show a faint haze looking like a microscopic nebula. All these comets are of considerable extent, some millions of miles thick usually, and yet stars are clearly visible through them. Hence, they must be matter of very small density. Their tails can be nothing more dense than a filmy mist, but their nucleus must be something more solid and substantial. I have said that comets arrive from the depths of space, rush towards and round the sun, whizzing past the earth with a speed of 26 miles a second on round the sun with a far greater velocity than that, and then rush off again. Now, all the time they are away from the sun, they are invisible. It is only as they get near him that they begin to expand and throw off tails and other appendages. The sun's heat is evidently evaporating them and driving away a cloud of mist and volatile matter. This is when they can be seen. The comet is most gorgeous when it is near the sun, and as soon as it gets a reasonable distance away from him, it is perfectly invisible. The matter evaporated from the comet by the sun's heat does not return. It is lost to the comet, and hence, after a few such journeys, its volatile matter gets appreciably diminished, and so old established periodic comets have no tales to speak of. But the new visitants coming from the depths of space for the first time, these have great supplies of volatile matter, and these are they which show the most magnificent tales. The tail of a comet is always directed away from the sun as if it were repelled. To this rule there is no exception. It is suggested and held as most probable 
that the tail and sun are similarly electrified, and that the repulsion of the tail is electrical repulsion. Some great force is obviously at work to account for the enormous distance to which the tail is shot in a few hours. The pressure of the sun's light can do something, and is a force that must not be ignored when small particles are being dealt with. Now just think what analogies there are between comets and meteors. Both are bodies traveling in orbits round the sun, and both are mostly visible, but both become visible to us under certain circumstances. Meteors become visible when they plunge into the extreme limits of our atmosphere. Comets become visible when they approach the sun. Is it possible that comets are large meteors which dip into the solar atmosphere and are thus rendered conspicuously luminous? Certainly, they do not dip into the actual main atmosphere of the sun, else they would be utterly destroyed. But it is possible that the sun has a faint trace of atmosphere extending far beyond this. And into this, perhaps these meteors dip and glow with the friction. The particles thrown off might be, also by friction, electrified, and the vaporous tail might be thus accounted for. Let us make this hypothesis provisionally, that comets are large meteors, or a compact swarm of meteors, which, coming near the sun, find a highly rarefied sort of atmosphere, in which they get heated and partly vaporized, just as ordinary meteorites do when they dip into the atmosphere of the Earth. And let us see whether any facts bear out the analogy and justify the hypothesis. I must tell you now the history of three bodies, and you will see that some intimate connection between comets and meteors is proved. The three bodies are known as first, Encke's comet, second, Baylor's comet, third, the November swarm of meteors. Encke's comet, one of those discovered by Miss Herschel, is an insignificant-looking telescopic comet of a small period, the orbit of which was well known and which was carefully observed at each reappearance after Encke had calculated its orbit. It was the quickest of the comets, returning every three and a half years. It was found, however, that its period was not quite constant. It kept on getting slightly shorter. The comet, in fact, returned to the sun slightly before its time. Now this effect is exactly what friction against a solar atmosphere would bring about. Every time it passed near the sun, a little velocity would be rubbed out of it. But the velocity is that which carries it away. Hence, it would not go quite so far and therefore would return a little sooner. Any revolving body subject to friction must revolve quicker and quicker and get nearer and nearer its central body until, if the process goes on long enough, it must drop upon its surface. This seems the kind of thing happening to Ankh's comet. The effect is very small and not thoroughly proved, but so far as it goes, the evidence points to a greatly extended rare solar atmosphere, which rubs some energy out of it at every perihelion passage. Next, Biela's comet. This also was a well-known and carefully observed telescopic comet with a period of six years. In one of its distant excursions, it calculated that it must pass very near Jupiter, 
and much curiosity was excited as to what would happen to it in consequence of the perturbation it must experience. As I have said, comets are only visible as they approach the sun, and a watch was kept for it about its appointed time. It was late, but it did ultimately arrive. The singular thing about it, however, was that it was now double. It had apparently separated into two. This was in 1846. It was looked for again in 1852, and this time the components were further separated. Sometimes one was brighter, sometimes the other. Next time it ought to have come round, no one could find either portion. The comet seemed to have wholly disappeared. It has never been seen since. It was then recorded and advertised as the missing comet. But now comes the interesting part of the story. The orbit of this Biela comet was well known, and it was found that on a certain night in 1872, the Earth would cross the orbit and had some chance of encountering the comet. Not a very likely chance, because it need not be in that part of its orbit at that time. But it was suspected not to be far off, if still existent. Well, the night arrived, the Earth did cross the orbit, and there was seen not the comet, but a number of shooting stars. Not one body, nor yet two, but a multitude of bodies. In fact, a swarm of meteors. Not a very great swarm, such as sometimes occurs, but still a quite noticeable one. And this shower of meteors is definitely recognized as flying along the track of Biela's comet. They are known as the Andromedes. This observation has been generalized. Every cometary orbit is marked by a ring of meteoric stones traveling around it. And whenever a number of shooting stars are seen quickly, one after the other, it is evidence that we are crossing the track of some comet. But suppose instead of only crossing the track of a comet, we were to pass close to the comet itself. We should then expect to see an extraordinary swarm, a multitude of shooting stars. Such phenomena have occurred. The most famous are those known as the November meteors or Leonids. This is the third of those bodies whose history I had to tell you. Professor H. Newton of America, by examining ancient records, arrived at the conclusion that the Earth passed through a certain definite meteor shoal every 33 years. He found, in fact, that every 33 years an unusual flight of shooting stars was witnessed in November, the earliest record being 599 A.D. Their last appearance had been in 1833, and he therefore predicted their return in 1866 or 1867. Sure enough, in November 1866 they appeared and many must remember seeing that glorious display, although their hail was almost continuous. It is estimated that their average distance apart was 35 miles. Their radiant point was, and always is, in the constellation Leo, and hence their name Leonids. A parallel stream fixed in space necessarily exhibits a definite aspect with reference to the fixed stars. Its aspect with respect to the Earth, will be very changeable because of the rotation and revolution of that body. But its position 
with respect to constellations will be steady. Hence, each meteor swarm, being a steady parallel stream of rushing masses, always strikes us from the same point in stellar space. And by this point, or radiant, it is identified and named. The paths do not appear to us to be parallel. Because of perspective, they seem to radiate and spread in all directions, from a fixed center like spokes. But all these diverging streaks are really parallel lines optically foreshortened by different amounts so as to produce the radiant impression. The annex diagram, figure 105, clearly illustrates the fact that the radiant is the vanishing point of a number of parallel lines. This swarm is especially interesting to us from the fact that we cross its orbit every year, its orbit and the Earth's intersect. Every November we go through it, and hence every November we see a few stragglers of this immense swarm. The swarm itself takes 33 years on its revolution around the sun, and hence we only encounter it every 33 years. The swarm is of immense size. In breadth it is such that the Earth, flying 19 miles a second, takes 4 or 5 hours to cross it. And this is therefore the time the display lasts. But in length it is far more enormous. The speed with which it travels is 25 miles a second, for its orbit extends as far as Uranus, although by no means parabolic. And yet it takes more than a year to pass. Imagine a procession 200,000 miles broad, every individual rushing along at the rate of 25 miles every second, and the whole procession so long that it takes more than a year to pass. It is like a gigantic shoal of herrings swimming round and round the sun every 33 years, and traveling past the earth with that tremendous velocity of 25 miles a second. The earth dashes through the swarm and sweeps up myriads. Think of the countless numbers swept up by the whole earth in crossing such a shoal as that. But heaps more remain, and probably the millions which are destroyed every 33 years have not yet made any very important difference to the numbers still remaining. The earth never misses this swarm. Every 33 years it is bound to pass through some part of them, for the shoal is so long that if the head is just missed one November, the tail will be encountered next November. This is a plain and obvious result of its enormous length. It may be likened to a two-foot length of sewing silk swimming round and round an oval 60 feet in circumference. But, you will say, although the numbers are so great that destroying a few millions or so every 33 years makes but little difference to them, yet, if this process has been going on from all eternity, they ought to be all swept up. Granted, and no doubt the most ancient swarms have already all or nearly all been swept up. The August meteors, or Perseids, are an example. Every August we cross their path, and we have a small meteoric display radiating from the sword hand of Perseus, but never specially more in one August than another. It would seem as if the main shoal has disappeared, and nothing is now left but the stragglers, or perhaps it is that the shoal 
has gradually become uniformly distributed all along the path. Anyhow, these August meteors are reckoned much more ancient members of the solar system than are the November meteors. The November meteors are believed to have entered the solar system in the year 126 A.D. This may seem an extraordinary statement. It is not final, but it is based on the calculations of Leverrier, confirmed recently by Mr. Adams. A few moments will suffice to make the grounds of it clear. Leverrier calculated the orbit of the November meteors and found them to be an oval extending beyond Uranus. It was perturbed by the outer planets near which it went, so that in past times it must have moved in a slightly different orbit. Calculating back to their past positions, it was found that in a certain year it must have gone very near to Uranus, and that by the perturbation of this planet its path had been completely changed. Originally it had in all probability bent a comet flying in a parabolic orbit toward the sun like many others. This one, encountering Uranus, was pulled to pieces as it were, and its orbit made elliptical as shown in figure 107. It was no longer free to escape and go away into the depths of space. It was enchained and made a member of the solar system. It also ceased to be a comet. It was degraded into a shoal of meteors. This is believed to be the past history of this splendid swarm. Since its introduction to the solar system, it has made 52 revolutions. Its next return is due in November 1899, and I hope that it may occur in the English dusk, and, see figure 97, in a cloudless after-midnight sky as it did in 1866. End of Lecture 16 Recording by John Thomas Kuz, Kuzmarski, www.validateyourlife.com or johnkuz.com.